Let's pray together. Father, we come here this morning as a gathering of ordinary people who, uh, without you giving us life and breath and everything, uh, would not even be here, uh, would not even be alive. Uh, But we come here also this morning to be reminded that uh, without uh, the work that you have done in sending your son to die and to rise again, we would not have real life, um, a relationship with you. We would not be able to cry out, Abba, Father, and to know the hope that you give us in him. Father, we pray that uh, we may hear you speak this morning. Uh, wherever we are in relation to you, whether, whether we uh, know you fully and know the freedom of your grace, whether, whether we are questioning and doubting, even sceptical, Uh, whether we just need a a renewal and a refreshing touch from you to remind us of the hope you have given us. Uh, Give us ears uh, that are open to hear what you have to say and we pray this in the name of your uh, risen Son, Jesus. Amen. All human beings live with fear of death. It's a bold claim to make. Some might feel that it's an arrogant claim to make. But in this world, death is the only certainty. Everyone here in this church this morning will die. Hopefully not this morning, but eventually we all will die. Everything else is negotiable except for that reality. Recently, just a quick glance at the news, the newspaper. I read of a deadly bombing of Coptic Christian churches in Egypt where many people died. I heard about the death of the famous, renowned Australian comedian, John Clark, who recently passed away. And also saw the review of a movie about two friends setting out to dispose of the ashes of their friends. Death shocks us. Death causes us to mourn. Occasionally we let off steam by using death in humour, really to mask the fact that death is a confronting and a fearful thing. A recent study by academics from Oxford University found that the people who are least afraid of death are the deeply religious and the deeply non-religious. Sincere believers at one end and sincere atheists at the other end. Amongst the religious people who expressed uh, little fear of death, they found that those who were extrinsically religious, that is, those who followed religious practices more because of the maybe the social benefits that they get from it or the emotional benefits. They just go through the religious uh, rituals. Uh, They actually had more fear of death than those whom they describe as intrinsically religious. Those who held deep convictions that they stood firm on uh, even if they may suffer as a result. And the theory is that the 
the well thought through atheists who said, I'm not afraid of death, is that, well, because they've carefully thought through the atheism, they've also carefully thought through the implications of that. That death is the end of my existence and somehow they've come to terms with that. And I've heard many atheists express that idea. But I know that's not always the case in practice. My own grandfather was an atheist until his dying day. And even in his 90s, he died at 96, he once told me that he was afraid to die. His 90 years of rationalising his belief that there is nothing outside of this life did nothing to take away his fear of death. I think it's also interesting to, to note that apart from countries where atheism is enforced by the state or has been enforced by the state, the countries in the world that have the highest number of atheists who believe there's nothing after death are all first world countries where, coincidentally, we have a high standard of living, where we feel secure, where we have a long life expectancy. It seems that it's easier to believe that there's nothing after death and to come to terms with that if your life is good and you feel that you've managed to get as much out of this life as you can. Pulitzer Prize winning cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker, I only just heard of him recently, uh, wasn't a religious man but he wrote a book called The Denial of Death. Here's what he says, man, humanity, is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness in that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty and yet goes back into the ground a few feet in order blindly and dumbly to rot and disappear forever. It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. Everything that man does in this symbolic world is an attempt to deny and overcome his grotesque fate. He literally drives himself into a blind obliviousness with social games, psychological tricks, personal preoccupations, so far removed from the reality of his situation that they are forms of madness. Agreed madness, shared madness, disguised and dignified madness, but madness all the same. Ironically, Becker died of cancer one year after writing this book. And as he wrote the book, he knew that he had cancer and that he would die. But he had just observed, as an anthropologist who observed human behaviour, that was his, his job, He just observed what the Bible has been telling us for over 2,000 years. That people, through our fear of death, 
are in lifelong slavery. That's what Hebrews 2 verse 15 tells us. Now some people might say, oh but that just proves the theory, doesn't it? That in the end, religion is just the product of fear. Because people fear death, they make up religion to try and deal with that fear. They might say Christians want to believe in Jesus' resurrection and the promise of eternal life because they're afraid. They're afraid of going to hell when they die. In fact, a previous church I used to attend one Saturday night had a graffiti attack and we arrived Sunday morning to be greeted with the words at the front of the church, Christianity is for people who are afraid of death. We actually decided to leave that graffiti there for a while because, ironically, it's actually true. Christianity is for people who are afraid of death. But this claim that uh, religion is just made up by people who are afraid of going to hell or afraid of death, that doesn't actually work with Christianity. It may work with other religions, but not with Jesus. Normally, if a person is, is converted to a religion because of fear, they also have to be kept in fear if they're going to stay faithful to that religion. It's a technique used by cults and by religious groups, this ever-present threat that you may lose your salvation or you may fall out of favour with God or with your fellow, uh, fellow believers and that's what is used to, to keep people in, this, this threat, this fear uh, that drives them. However, Jesus never uses fear to convert people or keep people. Fear has to do with punishment. It has to do with shame. Jesus doesn't bring us to himself through punishment or shame. He doesn't say, do this or else. He says, come to me because. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Come to me that you may have life. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink all the words of Jesus. And this one who calls us to come to him is the one who first came to us. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He says, the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Earlier on, I quoted just a part of Hebrews 2.15. Here's the rest of that passage. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Note that Jesus doesn't deal with death by denying it or by making it out to be not so bad, just the cycle of life. No, Jesus uses death, his death, to deal with death and bring death to an end. We'll unpack that in a moment. In our our passage we heard read this morning, um, we see we see fear being talked about, but it's fear of a different kind. Now just a a quick aside Uh, most uh, English translations of Mark uh, continue beyond where we finished uh, this morning in the reading. However, most of them also have a footnote indicating that the earliest copies of Mark finish with verse 8. And it's almost certain that the original version of Mark's Gospel finishes at this point with the women running from the tomb. This might seem a strange way to us to end a Gospel. All the other Gospels record Jesus appearing to his disciples alive again. And verse 8 contains words that may not seem to us to be the most positive, trembling, bewildered, afraid. What's going on here? Why did Mark end his Gospel this way? Well, these three words, uh, translated trembling, bewildered or astonished and afraid, can be used in both a negative and a positive way in the original Greek. We may tremble when we hear bad or frightening news. However, we may also tremble when we hear news that's almost too good to be true or news which we least expected. The women had just faced the most horrific three days of their life. They had witnessed Jesus being brutally executed. They had seen him being carried away dead and placed in the tomb. They'd come to the tomb to mourn. They never expected to see Jesus alive again. They were thinking that all of their hopes had gone with him into that tomb, gone forever. So how else would we expect them to respond when they're told by angels that he was alive again? Wouldn't they tremble? Wouldn't news like that take a moment, a while to actually sink in? 
Secondly, the word astonishment or uh, bewilderment is a translation of the Greek word ekstasis, from which we get our English word ecstasy. If we say that someone is ecstatic, we tend to mean it in a positive way, don't we? Something amazing has happened and that person is ecstatic. It literally means to stand outside yourself or as we might say, to be beside yourself. And the word that's translated there as fear is a word that can be used to convey a foreboding, a dreading, a terrifying feeling. But it's also used as a word to describe the way we should view God. To be in awe of his greatness, of his power, of his justice and his glory. It's the natural response of a creature who has come face to face with the glory of their creator. So rather than an image of the women fleeing, confused and afraid and terrified, Mark is painting for us a picture of these women who were amazed by the most exciting, mind-blowing news they had ever heard. See, Jesus' resurrection means not merely that the man Jesus is alive again against all odds. If we heard that someone who was dead was alive and we saw them walking down the street, that would amaze us. But it's not just that it's a man who's alive again. It's because of who Jesus is that makes all the difference. This marks the start of a cataclysmic, history-making, destiny-forming, earth-shattering reality of the establishment of the Kingdom of God. And the resurrection of Jesus is not just about one man. It is about the resurrection of the entirety of humanity which will mean a total, renewed, liberated, recreated universe. The enormity of this had gripped them. They were witnesses of the start of a new creation. Nothing will ever be the same again. The resurrection isn't merely something to believe in an intellectual sense. Often Christians and non-Christians can get caught up in arguments about the credibility, the reliability of the resurrection and how much history and literature and science might prove or disprove whether or not it happened. The resurrection isn't something to be proven. It's something to be encountered. It's a reality that transforms. Hear what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The main reason that Jesus came was not to die on the cross. Before you take me outside and stone me, let me explain what I mean by that. The cross was not an end in itself. The cross was a means to an end. The role of the Messiah, the Christ, was to be the one who would pour out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. Not just prophets and priests and kings, but to all of God's people, regardless of age, status, gender or role. This new era of the Spirit was to replace the old era, the era of temples and priests and sacrifices. It would be an era when people would be free to worship the Father in spirit and in truth wherever and whenever they are. They don't need to go to a building to find God's presence. No one would need any more to come to the temple in Jerusalem to encounter the living God because God's spirit would be sent out into the whole earth and would draw people to God from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we're told that these people who are drawn to God through the work of his spirit as they see Christ crucified and risen, these people will become the dwelling place of God by his spirit. However, in order for this to happen, the dwelling place had to be made suitable for God to dwell in. Just as the temple in Jerusalem And everything that was in it had to be sanctified, had to be cleansed and purified so that it was a suitable dwelling place for God's presence and glory to dwell. So too must those among whom he will dwell by his spirit must be cleansed and purified and sanctified. The cross is the means by which that cleansing, purifying and sanctifying work is done. It's through the cross that the human heart is made a suitable dwelling place for God by his spirit. And the resurrection declares Jesus to be truly this one, this one who gives the gift of the spirit to all who trust in him. Because Jesus is alive, he pours out the gift of the Holy Spirit and is the Spirit who transforms our lives, who opens our eyes to see the glory of God and causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, because he has brought us to know and love the Father who sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. This is the fullness of life, the life that Jesus promised. This is a life that starts now, not just when we die and go to heaven. It's life lived in light of the sure hope we have 
that because Jesus rose from the dead, so too will we. When your future is secure, you have freedom to live in the now because you're not worried what might tomorrow, what might next year, what might my future bring. If that is all secure, if you can say that is in God's hands, he has, he has guaranteed me a hope that is sure, then I can relax in the now and I can live freely in the now and get the most out of the now. There's a, a philosopher called Alain de Botton and he wrote a book called Religion for Atheists. He talks about a phenomenon called status anxiety and he attributes it to the loss of Christian hope in the Western world. He he himself is an atheist, a, a committed atheist. He says that because we, we've lost this sense that there's something more after the grave, then it means this life is all we have and I need to do whatever I can to get the most for myself out of this life. Otherwise, it's all a waste. And so to do that, I gather to myself things that will give me status, things that will make me feel good about myself, a career, material possessions, financial security, a good reputation. These are all things that in, in the world we are all chasing after. See, having no security for the future causes us to live selfishly in the present. We live for ourselves, to get the most for ourselves that we can. And so we rationalise and justify ourselves and our selfishness by doing away with this thought of an afterlife. And we rationalise it and justify it by doing away with a belief in God. And so we're back again to this issue of denying death because we fear it. Jesus' resurrection deals with this fear. It deals with our status anxiety. It deals with our insecurity about how we live our lives today because it deals with sin and therefore it deals with the need for judgement. We saw earlier in that Hebrews passage that Jesus destroyed the devil who has the power of death. Why does he have this power? Well, it's because he is the accuser. He is the counsel for the prosecution who brings us before God and reminds us of our sin. And he brings before our consciences the reality of our sin and our rebellion and the justice it demands. That is the only weapon the devil has against us. It's our sin and the judgement that comes because of sin. However, sin has been taken away at the cross. Jesus has taken away accusation 
and the devil's only weapon against us is rendered useless. This is true freedom, knowing that you may stand before the God of the universe and be acceptable in his eyes. And not just acceptable, but welcomed into his family so that you can call him Father. Knowing that because your place in the Father's family is secured, because Jesus is risen from the dead and sits at the Father's right hand and says of us, they're with me. I died for them. Their sin is now gone. And I've poured my spirit into their hearts as the guarantee of their future, not just for this life but for eternity. The resurrection of Jesus is incredibly practical, not merely pie in the sky when you die. Paul told the Corinthians, after one of the longest chapters in the New Testament, which was all about the resurrection, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. The word vain means empty or meaningless or to no end. Because Jesus is alive, everything we do now has meaning. Nothing we do is insignificant. Whether it's preaching a sermon on Easter Sunday morning or changing your baby's nappy or getting up every morning and going to work. The resurrection transforms the drudgery of a life that's lived too briefly and then ends in the grave. A life lived with purpose, with the goal of living for God's glory and for living for one another in love. Mark finished his Gospel with the women running to tell the good news of Jesus' resurrection to his disciples, as they were told. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus appeared several times over the next 40 days and on one of these occasions he told one of his disciples, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It's as if Mark has deliberately ended his gospel at this point because he wants to communicate to us, those who read and hear his gospel, well, what about you? What do you make of this world-tilting news of Jesus' resurrection? Do you believe that he is alive even though you have not seen him with your physical eyes? And what will you make of it? Will it transform your life? Will you come to Jesus as he calls and receive the life that he gives? And having received that life, will you step out into the fullness of that life, empowered by his spirit and live to God's glory and to love your neighbour as yourself. This is the freedom we have 
because Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father, like the women at the tomb, we hear news that is, to our minds, too hard to grasp or understand or take in. That Jesus is alive. That because of him, all sin is gone or accusation is gone. Because of him, we may come freely to you in the freedom of forgiveness, in the freedom where there's no condemnation and know that you receive us, not just as citizens of your kingdom, but as sons and daughters in your family. Father, we ask that we might have the gift of faith to see, to behold the risen Jesus and to put our trust in him. And we pray too that we might have the grace, the empowerment by your Holy Spirit to live a life that displays your glory and to speak words that proclaim the wonder of the risen Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.